I'm Meg Wallitzer, host of Selected Shorts. Stories have so much to teach us, so I wish I could be with you this week for some works about distance learning. But we have a great substitute teacher, literary powerhouse Roxanne Gay. Sharpen your pencils and stay with us. It seems to me that the myth, the, the illusion that this is a free country, for example, is disastrous. James Baldwin's unwritten novel, this week on Selected Shorts. I'm Roxanne Gay, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. All of us who lived through 2020 faced some unusual challenges. Mask wearing, perpetual hand sanitizing, trying to bump elbows without irony. It's strange, as social creatures, being forced to stay apart. Everything becomes remote. Our communications, our entertainment, our education. In 2020, the only things that seemed to be within my arm's reach were books and my work and my wife and our new puppy. And I was perfectly okay with that. In this episode of Selected Shorts, we consider the potential power of distance learning. Our authors explore the challenges and benefits of standing apart from people and things we love most. The 20th century Italian fabulist Italo Calvino is revered among lovers of lyrical prose. He usually creates strange new worlds with their own wild rituals. In this story, The Adventures of a Skier, Calvino keeps his feet planted on earth and faithfully observes one of our earthly rituals, adolescent infatuation. This is James Naughton reading The Adventure of a Skier by Italo Calvino. There was a line at the ski lift. The group of boys who had come on the bus had joined it, one next to the other, skis parallel, and every time it advanced, it was long, and instead of going straight, as in fact it could have, zigzagged randomly, sometimes upward, sometimes down. They stepped up or slid down sideways, depending on where they were, and immediately propped themselves on their poles again often resting their weight on the neighbor below, or trying to free their poles from under the skis of the neighbor above, stumbling on skis that had got twisted, leaning over to adjust their bindings and bringing the whole line to a halt, pulling off windbreakers or sweaters or putting them back on as the sun appeared or disappeared, tucking strands of hair under their woolen headbands, or the billowing tails of their checked shirts into their belts, digging in their pockets for handkerchiefs and blowing their red frozen noses. And for all these operations, taking off and then putting back on their big gloves, which sometimes fell in the snow and had to be picked up with the tip of a pole. That flurry of small disjointed gestures coursed through the line and became frenzied at the front when the skier had to unzip every pocket to find where he'd stuck his ticket money or his badge and hand it to the lift operator to punch 
And then he had to put it back in his pocket and readjust his gloves and join his two poles together, the tip of one stuck in the basket of the other so that they could be held with one hand. All this while climbing the small slope in the open space where he had to be ready to position the T-bar under his bottom and let it tug him jerkily upward. The boy in the green goggles was at the midway point of the line, numb with cold, and next to him was a fat boy who kept pushing. As they stood there, a girl in a sky-blue hood passed. She didn't get in line. She kept going up on the path. And she moved uphill on her skis as lightly as if she were walking. What's that girl doing? She's going to walk? The fat boy who was pushing asked. She's got climbing skins, the boy in the green goggles said. Well, I'd like to see her up where it gets steep, the fat boy said. She's not as smart as she thinks she is. You can bet on that. The girl moved easily. Her high knees, she had very long legs, in close-fitting pants, snug at the ankles, moving rhythmically in time with the raising and lowering of her shiny poles. In that frozen white air, the sun looked like a precise yellow drawing with all its rays. On the expanses of snow where there was no shadow, only the glint of sunlight indicated humps and crevices and the trampled course of the trails. Framed by the hood of the sky-blue windbreaker, the blonde girl's face was a shade of pink that turned red on her cheeks against the white plush lining of the hood. She laughed at the sun, squinting slightly. She moved nimbly on her climbing skins. The boys in the group from the bus with their frozen ears, chapped lips, sniffling noses, couldn't take their eyes off her and began shoving one another in the line until she climbed over a ledge and disappeared. Gradually, as their turn came, the boys in the group, after many initial stumbles and false starts, began to ascend two by two, pulled along the almost vertical track. The boy in the green goggles ended up on the same T-bar as the fat boy who kept pushing. And there, halfway up, they saw her again. How did that girl get up here? At that point, the lift skirted a sort of hollow where a packed down trail advanced between high dunes of snow and occasional fir trees fringed with embroideries of ice. The sky blue girl was proceeding effortlessly with that precise stride of hers and that push forward of her gloved hands gripping the handles of her poles. Ooh, the boys on the lift shouted, holding their legs stiff as they ascended. She might even beat the rest of us. She had a delicate smile on her lips, and the boy in the green goggles was confused. He didn't dare to keep up the banter, because when she lowered her eyelids, he felt as if he'd been erased. As soon as he reached the top, he started down the slope behind the fat boy, both of them as heavy as sacks of potatoes. But what he was looking for as he made his way along the trail was a glimpse of the sky-blue windbreaker 
and he hurtled straight down so that he'd appear bold and at the same time hide his clumsiness on the turns. Look out, look out, he called in vain, because the fat boy too and all the boys in the group were descending at breakneck speed shouting, look out, look out. And one by one they fell backward or forward and he alone was cutting through the air, bent double over his skis until he saw her. The girl was still going up, off the trail, in the fresh snow. The boy in the green goggles grazed her, shooting by like an arrow, rammed the fresh snow and disappeared into it, face forward. <laughs> but at the bottom of the slope, breathless, dusted in snow from head to foot, come on, there he was again, with all the others in line for the lift, and then up, up again to the top, this time, when he met her, she too was going down. How did she go? For the boys, a champion was someone who sped straight down like a lunatic. Well, she's no champion, the blonde, the fat boy said quickly, relieved. The sky-blue girl was coming down unhurriedly, making her turns with precision, or rather in such a way that until the last moment, they couldn't tell if she'd turn or what she'd do. And then suddenly they'd see her descending in the opposite direction. She was taking her time, you might have said, stopping every so often to study the trail, upright on her long legs. But still, the boys from the bus couldn't keep up, until even the fat boy admitted, no kidding, she's incredible. They wouldn't have been able to explain why. But this was what held them spellbound. All her movements were as simple as possible and perfectly suited to her person. She never exaggerated by a centimeter, never showed a hint of agitation or effort or determination to do a thing at all costs, but did it naturally. And depending on the state of the trail, she even made a few uncertain moves, like someone walking on tiptoe, which was her way of overcoming the difficulties without revealing whether she was taking them seriously or not. In other words, not with the confident air of one who does things as they should be done, but with a trace of reluctance, as if she were trying to imitate a good skier, but always ended up skiing better. This was the way the sky-blue girl moved on her skis. Then, one after the other, awkward, heavy, snapping the Christies, forcing snowplow turns into a slalom, the boys from the bus plunged down after her, trying to follow her, to pass her, shouting, making fun of one another. But everything they did was a messy downhill tumble with disjointed shoulder movements, arms holding poles out straight, skis that crossed, bindings that broke off boots. And wherever they went, the snow was gouged by crashing bottoms, hips, head over heels, dives. After every fall, they raised their heads and immediately looked for her. Passing through the avalanche of boys, the sky blue girl went along lightly, 
The straight creases of her close-fitting pants scarcely angled as her knees bent, and you couldn't tell if her smile was in sympathy with the exploits and mishaps of her downhill companions, or was instead a sign that she didn't even notice them. Meanwhile, the sun, instead of getting stronger as midday approached, froze and disappeared as if soaked up by blotting paper. The air was full of light colorless crystals flying slantwise. It was sleet. You couldn't see from here to there. The boys skied blindly, shouting and calling to one another. And they were continually going off the trail and, <laughs> come on, falling. Air and snow were now the same color, opaque white. But by peering intently into that whiteness, so that it almost became less dense, the boys could make out the sky-blue shadow, suspended in the midst of it, flying this way and that, as if on a violin string. The sleet had scattered the crowd at the lift. The boy in the green goggles found himself, without realizing it, near the hut at the lift station. There was no sign of his companions. The girl in the sky-blue hood was already there. She was waiting for the T-bar, which was now making its turn. Quick! The lift man shouted to him, grabbing the T-bar and holding it so that the girl wouldn't set off alone. With limping herringbones, the boy in the green goggles managed to position himself next to the girl just in time to depart with her but he nearly caused her to fall as he grabbed hold of the bar. She kept them both balanced until he righted himself, muttering self-reproaches, to which she responded with a low laugh like the glue-glue of a guinea hen, muffled by the windbreaker drawn up over her mouth. Now the sky-blue hood, like the helmet of a suit of armor, left uncovered only her nose, her eyes, a few curls on her forehead and her cheekbones. So he saw her in profile, the boy in the green goggles, and didn't know whether to be happy to find himself on the same tea bar or to be ashamed of being there, all covered with snow, the hair pasted to his temples, his shirt puffing out between sweater and belt. He didn't dare tuck it in in case he lost his balance by moving his arms. and. He was partly glancing sideways at her, partly keeping an eye on the position of his skis so that they wouldn't go off the track at moments of traction too slow or too taut. And it was always she who kept them balanced, laughing her guinea hen gloop gloop while he didn't know what to say. The snow had stopped. Now there was a break in the fog, and in the break, the sky appeared, blue at last, and the shining sun and one by one the clear frozen mountains, their peaks feathered here and there by soft shreds of the snow cloud. The mouth and chin of the girl reappeared. It's nice again, she said. I said it would be. Yes, the boy in the green goggles said. Nice. Then the snow will be good. A little soft. Oh, yes, but I like it, she said. 
And going down in the fog isn't bad. As long as you know the trail, he said. No, she said, guessing. I've already done it three times, the boy said. Good for you. I've only done it once, but I went up without the lift. I saw you. you you'd put on climbing skins. Yes. Now that the sun's out, I, I'll go up to the pass. To the pass where? Farther up, above where the lift goes, up to the top. What's up there? The glacier seems so close, it's as if you could touch it. And the white hairs. The what? The hairs. At this altitude, mountain hares put on a white coat. Also the partridges. Up there? White partridges, their feathers are all white. In summer, their feathers are pale brown. Where are you from? Italy. I'm Swiss. They had arrived. They pulled away from the lift, he clumsily. She, holding the bar with her hand, through the whole turn. She took off her skis, stood them upright, removed the climbing skins from the bag she wore at her waist, and fastened them to the bottoms of the skis. He watched, rubbing his cold fingers in his gloves. Then, when she began to climb, he followed. The ascent from the lift to the summit of the pass was difficult. The boy in the green goggles worked hard, sometimes herringboning, sometimes stepping, sometimes trudging up and sliding back, holding on to his poles like a lame man, his crutches. And already she was up where he couldn't see her. He reached the pass in a sweat, tongue out, half blinded by the glittering radiance all around. There, the world of ice began. The blonde girl had taken off her sky blue windbreaker and tied it around her waist. She too had put on a pair of goggles. There, did you see? Did you see? What is it? He said, dazed. Had a white hair leaped out? A partridge? It's not there anymore, she said. Below, over the valley, cawing blackbirds fluttered as usual at 2,000 meters. Midday had turned perfectly clear, and from up there you could see the trails, the open slopes thronged with skiers, children sledding, the lift station, and the line which had reformed, the hotel, the parked buses, the road that wove in and out of the black forest of fir trees. The girl had set off on the descent, going back and forth in her tranquil zigzags, and had already reached the point where the trails were more trafficked by skiers, yet her figure, faintly sketched like an oscillating parenthesis, didn't get lost in the confusion of darting interchangeable profiles. It remained the only one that could be picked out and followed, removed from chance and disorder. The air was so clear that the boy in the green goggles could divine in the snow the dense network of ski tracks, straight and oblique, of abrasions, mounds, holes, and pole marks. And it seemed to him that there, in the shapeless jumble of life, was hidden 
a secret line, a harmony, traceable only to the sky-blue girl. And this was the miracle of her, that at every instant, in the chaos of innumerable possible movements, she chose the only one that was right and clear and light and necessary. The only gesture that, among an infinity of wasted gestures, counted. That was James Naughton performing The Adventure of a Skier by Italo Calvino. I am Roxanne Gay. This next story about learning from a distance is by Haitian writer Edwige Danticat. It involves a mother, a daughter, and two very different worlds that overlap on the avenues of Manhattan. This is New York Day Women by Edwige Danticat, performed by Lorraine Tower. Today, walking down the street, I see my mother. She is strolling with a happy gait, her body thrust toward the don't walk sign and the yellow taxi cabs that make 45 degree turns on the corner of Madison and 57th Street. I have never seen her in this kind of neighborhood, peering into Chanel and Tiffany's and gawking at the jewels glowing in the Bulgari windows. My mother never shops outside of Brooklyn. She has never seen the advertising office where I work. She is afraid to take the subway, where you may meet those young black militant street preachers who curse black women for straightening their hair. Yet, here she is, my mother, who I left at home that morning in her bathrobe with pieces of newspapers twisted like rollers in her hair. My mother, who accuses me of random offenses as I dash out of the house. Would you get up and give an old lady like me your subway seat? In this state of mind, I bet you don't even give up your seat to a pregnant lady. My mother, who was often right about that. Sometimes I get up and give my seat, other times I don't. It all depends on how pregnant the woman is and whether or not she is with her boyfriend or husband and whether or not he is sitting down. As my mother stands in front of Carnegie Hall, one taxi driver yells to another, what do you think this is, a dance floor? My mother waits patiently for this dispute to be settled before crossing the street. In Haiti, when you get hit by a car, the owner of the car gets out and kicks you for getting blood on his bumper. My mother, who laughs when she says this, and shows a large gap in her mouth where she lost three more molars to the dentist last week. My mother, who at 59 says dentures are okay. You can take them out when they bother you. I'll like them. I'll like them fine. Will it feel empty when Papa kisses you? Oh no, he doesn't kiss me that way anymore. 
My mother, who watches the lottery drawing every night on Channel 11 without ever having played the numbers. <laughs> a third of that money is all I would need. We would pay the mortgage, and your father could stop driving that taxi cab all over Brooklyn. I follow my mother, mesmerized by the many possibilities of her journey. Even in a flower dress, she is lost in a sea of pinstripes and gray suits, high heels and elegant short skirts, Reebok sneakers dashing from building to building. My mother, who won't go out to dinner with anyone. If they want to eat with me, let them come to my house, even if I boil water and give it to them. <laughs> my mother, who talks to herself when she peels the skin off poultry. Fat, you know and cholesterol. Fat and cholesterol killed your Aunt Hermine. <laughs> My mother who makes jam with dried grapefruit peel and then puts in cinnamon bark that I always think is cockroaches in the jam. <laughs> My mother, whom I have always bought household appliances for on her birthday, a nice rice cooker, a blender, I trail the red orchids in her dress and the heavy faux leather bag on her shoulders. Realizing the ferocious pace of my pursuit, I stop against a wall to rest. My mother keeps on walking as though she owns the sidewalk under her feet. As she heads towards the Plaza Hotel, a bicycle messenger swings so close to her that I want to dash forward and rescue her, but she stands dead in her tracks and lets him ride around her and then goes on. My mother stops at a corner hot dog stand and asks for something. The vendor hands her a can of soda that she slips into her bag. She stops by another vendor selling sundresses for $7 each. I can tell that she is looking at an African print dress, contemplating my size. I think to myself, please, Ma, don't buy it. It would be just another thing that I would bury in the garage or give to Goodwill. Why should we give to Goodwill when there are so many people back home who need clothes? We save our clothes for the relatives in Haiti. Twenty years we have been saving all kinds of things for the relatives in Haiti. I need the place in the garage for an exercise bike. You are pretty enough to be a stewardess. Only dogs like bones. This mother of mine, she stops at another hot dog vendor's and buys a frankfurter that she eats on the street. I never knew that she ate frankfurters. With her blood pressure, she shouldn't eat anything with sodium. She has to be careful with her heart, this day woman. I cannot just swallow salt. Salt is heavier than a hundred bags of shame. She is slowing her pace, and now I am too close. If she turns around, she might see me. I let her walk into the park before I start to follow again. My mother walks toward the sandbox in the middle of the park. There, a woman is waiting with a child. The woman is wearing a leotard with biker shorts and has small weights in her hands. The woman kisses the child goodbye and surrenders him to my mother. Then she bolts off, running on the cemented stretches in the park. The child, given to my mother, has frizzy blonde hair. His hand slips into hers easily, like he's known her for a long time. When he raises his face to look at my mother, it is as though he is looking at the sky. My mother gives this child the soda that she bought from the vendor on the street corner. 
The child's face lights up as she puts in a straw in the can for him. This seems to be a conspiracy, just between the two of them. My mother and the child sit and watch the other children play in the sandbox. The child pulls out a comic book from a knapsack with Big Bird on the back. My mother peers into his comic book. My mother, who taught herself to read as a little girl in Haiti from the books that her brothers brought home from school. My mother, who has now lost six of her seven sisters in Ville Rose and has never had the strength to return for their funerals. Many graves to kiss when I go back. Many graves to kiss. She throws away the empty soda can when the child is done with it. I wait and watch from a corner until the woman in the leotard and biker shorts returns, sweaty and breathless, an hour later. My mother gives the woman back her child and strolls farther into the park. I turn around and start to walk out of the park before my mother can see me. My lunch hour is long since gone. I have to hurry back to work. I walk through a cluster of joggers, then race to a Sweden tours bus. I stand behind the bus and take a peek at my mother in the park. She is standing in a circle, chatting with a group of women who are taking other people's children on an afternoon outing. They look like a third world parent-teacher association meeting. <laughs> I quickly jump into a cab heading back to the office. Would Ma have said hello had she been the one to see me first? As the cab races away from the park, it occurs to me that perhaps one day I would chase an old woman down a street by mistake, and that old woman would be somebody else's mother who I would have mistaken for mine. Day women come out when nobody expects them. Tonight on the subway, I will get up and give my seat to a pregnant woman or a lady about Ma's age. My mother, who stuffs thimbles in her mouth and then blows up her cheeks like Dizzy Gillespie while sewing yet another Raggedy Ann doll that she named Suzette after me. I will have all these little Suzettes in case you never have any babies, which looks more and more like it is going to happen. <laughs> My mother, who had me when she was 33, l'âge du Christ, at the age that Christ died on the cross. Oh, that's a blessing, believe you me. Even if American doctors say by that time you can make retarded babies. My mother, who sews lace collars on my company softball t-shirts when she does my laundry. <laughs> Why can't you look like a lady playing softball? <laughs> my mother, who never went to any of my parent-teacher association meetings when I was in school. Oh, you're so good anyway. What are they going to tell me? I don't want to make you ashamed of this day, woman. Shame is heavier than a hundred bags of salt. <laughs> that was New York Day Women by Edwidge Danticat, read by Laureen Towler. I am Roxanne Gay. You know, I'm always moved by Edwige's writing, but I also marvel at her craft. She is such an elegant writer. She manages to convey both subtlety and power in her stories, which is no easy feat. When we return, James Baldwin imagines the nation in a novel. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide.
Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Roxanne Gay. Our final piece on this Selected Shorts program is by the writer and activist James Baldwin. He is fearless. He says the uncomfortable thing. He holds whiteness in particular to account while centering blackness. Here is Brandon J. Durden reading notes for a hypothetical novel by James Baldwin. We've been talking about writing for the last two days, which is a very reckless thing to do, so that I shall be absolutely reckless tonight and pretend that I'm writing a novel in your presence. I'm going to ramble on a little tonight about my own past, not as though it were my own past exactly, but as a subject for fiction. I'm doing this in a kind of halting attempt to relate the terms of my experience to yours and to find out what specific principle, if any, unites us in spite of all the obvious disparities, some of which are superficial and some of which are profound and most of which are entirely misunderstood. We'll come back to that in any case, this misunderstanding, I mean, in a minute, but I want to warn you that I'm not pretending to be unbiased. I'm certain that there is something which unites all the Americans in this room, though I can't say what it is. But if I were to meet any one of you in some other country, England, Italy, France, or Spain, it would be at once apparent to everybody else, though it might not be to us, that we had something in common which scarcely any other people or no other people could really share. Let's pretend that I want to write a novel concerning the people or some of the people with whom I grew up. And since we're only playing, let's pretend it's a very long novel. I want to follow a group of lives almost from the time they open their eyes on the world until some point of resolution, say marriage or childbirth or death. And I want to impose myself on these people as little as possible. That means that I do not want to tell them or the reader what principle their lives illustrate or what principle is activating their lives, but by examining their lives, I hope to be able to make them convey to me and to the reader what their lives mean. Now, I I know that this is altogether impossible. I mean that I know that my people are controlled by my point of view, and that by the time I begin the novel, I have some idea of what I want the novel to do or to say or to be. But just the same, whatever my point of view is, and whatever my intentions, because I am an American writer, my subject and my material inevitably has to be a handful of incoherent people in an incoherent country. (laughs) And I don't mean incoherent in any light sense. And later on we'll talk about what I mean when I use that word. Well, who are these people who fill my past and seem to clamor to be expressed? I was born on a very wide avenue in Harlem, and in those days that part of town was called the Hollow, and now it's called Junkies Hollow. The time was the 1920s, and as I was coming into the world, there was something going on called the Negro Renaissance. 
and the most distinguished survivor of that time is Mr. Langston Hughes. This Negro Renaissance is an elegant term which means that white people had then discovered that Negroes could act <laughs> and write as well as sing and dance. And this renaissance was not destined to last very long. Very shortly there was to be a depression and the artistic Negro or the noble savage was to give way to the militant or the new Negro. And I want to point out something in passing which I think is worth our time to look at, which is this. That this country's image of the Negro, which hasn't very much to do with the Negro, has never failed to reflect with a kind of frightening accuracy the state of mind of the country. This was the jazz age, you will remember. It was the epoch of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Josephine Baker had just gone to France. Mussolini had just come to power in Italy. There was a peculiar man in Germany who was plotting and writing and the Lord knows what Lumumba's mother was thinking. And all of these things and a million more which are now known to the novelist but not to his people are to have a terrible effect on their lives. There's a figure I carry in my mind's eye to this day and I don't know why. He can't really be the first person I remember, but he seems to be, apart from my mother and father. And this is a man about as old perhaps as I am now, who's coming up our street, very drunk, falling down drunk. And it must have been a Saturday, and I was sitting in the window. It must have been winter because I remember he had a black overcoat on because his overcoat was open. And he's stumbling past one of those high iron railings with spikes on top, and he's, he falls and he bumps his head against one of those railings and blood comes down his face and there are kids behind him and they're tormenting him and laughing at him. And that's all I remember and I don't know why. But I only throw him in to dramatize this fact that however solemn we writers or myself, I may sometimes sound or how pontifical I may sometimes seem to be on that level from which any genuine work of imagination springs, I'm really, and we all are, absolutely helpless and ignorant. But this figure is important because he's going to appear in my novel. He can't be kept out of it. He occupies too large a place in my imagination. And then, of course, I remember the church people because I was practically born in the church. And I seem to have spent most of that time that I was helpless sitting on someone's lap in the church and being beaten over the head whenever I fell asleep, which was usually. I was frightened of all those brothers and sisters of the church because they were all powerful, I thought they were. And I had one ally, my brother, who was a very undependable ally because sometimes I got beaten for the things he did and sometimes he got beaten for the things I did. But we were united in our hatred for the deacons and deaconesses and the shouting sisters and our father. And one of the reasons for this is that we were always hungry and he was always inviting those people over to the house on Sunday for an enormous banquet and we sat next to the icebox in the kitchen watching all these hams and chickens and biscuits go down their righteous bellies which had no bottom. Now, so far in this hypothetical sketch of an unwritten and probably unwritable novel, so good. From what we've already sketched, we can begin to anticipate one of those long, warm, toasty novels. 
you know, those novels in which the novelist is looking back on himself absolutely infatuated with himself as a child. And everything is in sentimentality, sentimentality. But I think we ought to bring ourselves up short because we don't need another version of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. <laughs> and we can do without another version of The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. This hypothetical book is aiming at something more implacable than that. Because no matter how ridiculous this may sound, that unseen prisoner in Germany is going to have an effect on the lives of these people. Two Italians are going to be executed presently in Boston. There's going to be something called the Scottsboro case, which will give the Communist Party hideous opportunities. In short, the social realities with which these people, the people I remember, whether they knew it or not, were really contending, can't be left out of the novel without falsifying their experience. And this, this is very important. This all has something to do with the sight of that tormented, falling down, drunken, bleeding man I mentioned at the beginning. Who is he and what does he mean? Well, then I remember what principally I remember the boys and girls on the streets, at the school, in the church. I remember in the beginning I only knew Negroes except for one Jewish boy, the only white boy in an all-Negro elementary school, a kind of survivor of another day in Harlem. And there was an Italian fruit vendor who lived next door to us who had a son with whom I fought every campaign of the Italian-Ethiopian War. Because remember that we're projecting a novel, and Harlem is in the course of changing all the time. Very soon, there won't be any white people there. <laughs> and this is also going to have some effect on the people in my story. Well, more people now. There was a boy, a member of our church, and he backslid which means he achieved a sex life <laughs> and started smoking cigarettes. And he was therefore rejected from the community in which he had been brought up because Harlem is also reduced to communities. And I've always believed that one of the reasons he died was because of this rejection. In any case, 18 months after he was thrown out of the church, he was dead of tuberculosis. And there was a girl who was a nice girl. She was a niece of one of the deaconesses. In fact, she was my girl. We were very young then. We were going to get married, and we were always singing, praying, and shouting. And we thought we'd live that way forever. But one day, she was picked up in the nightgown on Lenox Avenue, screaming and cursing. And they carried her away to an institution where she still may be. And by this time, I was a big boy, and there were the friends of my brothers, my younger brothers and sisters, and I had danced to Duke Ellington, but they were dancing to Charlie Parker. And I had learned how to drink gin and whiskey, but they were involved with marijuana and the needle. I will not really insist upon continuing this roster. I have not known many survivors. I know mainly about disaster. But then I want to remind you again of that man I mentioned in the beginning who haunts the imagination of this novelist. The imagination of a novelist 
has everything to do with what happens to his material. Now, we're a little beyond the territory of Betty Smith and Carson McCullers, but we are not quite beyond the territory of James T. Farrell or Richard Wright. Let's go a little bit farther. By and by, I left Harlem. I left all those deaconesses, all those sisters, and all those churches, and all those tambourines, and I entered, or anyway, I encountered the white world. Now, this white world which I was just encountering was just the same, one of the forces that had been controlling me from the time I opened my eyes on the world. For it is important to ask, I think, where did these people I'm talking about come from? And where did they get their peculiar school of ethics? What was its origin? What did it mean to them? What did it come out of? What function did it serve? And why was it happening here? And why were they living where they were? And what was it doing to them? All these things which sociologists think they can find out and haven't managed to do, which no chart can tell us. People are not, though in our age we seem to think so, endlessly manipulable. We think that once one has discovered that 30,000, let us say, Negroes, Chinese, or Puerto Ricans, or whatever, have syphilis or don't, or are unemployed or not, that we've discovered something about the Negroes, Chinese, or Puerto Ricans. But in fact, this is not so. In fact, we've discovered nothing very useful because people cannot be handled in that way. Anyway, in the beginning, I thought that the white world was very different from the world I was moving out of, and I turned out to be entirely wrong. It seemed different. It seemed safer. At least the white people seemed safer. It seemed cleaner. It seemed more polite. And of course, it seemed much richer from the material point of view. But I didn't meet anyone in that world who didn't suffer from the very same affliction that all the people I had fled from suffered from, and that was that they didn't know who they were. They wanted to be something that they were not, and very shortly, I didn't know who I was either. I could not be certain whether I was really rich or really poor, really black or really white, really male or really female, really talented or fraud, really strong or merely stubborn. In short, I had become an American. <laughs> I had stepped into, I had walked right into, as I inevitably had to do, the bottomless confusion, which is both public and private, of the American Republic. Now, we've brought this hypothetical hero to this place. Now, what are we going to do with him? What does all this mean? What can we make it mean? What's the thread that unites all these peculiar, disparate lives, whether it's from Idaho to San Francisco, from Idaho to New York, from Boston to Birmingham? Because there is something that unites all these people and places. What does it mean to be an American? What nerve is pressed in you or me when we hear this word? Earlier, I spoke about the disparities, and I said I was going to try and give an example of what I meant. Now, the most obvious thing that would seem to divide me from the rest of my countrymen is the fact of color. The fact of color has a relevance 
objectively and some relevance in some other way, some emotional relevance, and not only for the South, I mean that it persists as a problem in American life because it means something. It fulfills something in the American personality. It is here because the Americans in some peculiar way believe or think they need it. Maybe we can find out what it is that this problem fulfills in the American personality, what it corroborates, and in what way this peculiar thing until today helps Americans to feel safe. When I spoke about incoherence, I said I'd try to tell you what I meant by that word. It's a kind of incoherence that occurs, let us say, when I'm frightened, I am absolutely frightened to death, and there's something which is happening or about to happen that I don't want to face, or uh, let us say, which is an even better example, that I have a friend who has just murdered his mother and put her in the closet, and I know it, but we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> now, now, this means very shortly, since after all, I know the corpse is in the closet, and he knows I know it, and we're sitting around and having a few drinks and trying to be buddy-buddy together, that very shortly, we can't talk about anything because we can't talk about that. No matter what I say, I may inadvertently stumble upon this corpse. And this incoherence, which seems to afflict this country, is analogous to that. I mean that in order to have a conversation with someone, you have to reveal yourself. In order to have a real relationship with somebody, you've got to take the risk of being thought, God forbid, an oddball. You know, you have to take a chance, which in some peculiar way, we don't seem willing to take. And this is very serious and that it is not so much a writer's problem. That is to say, I don't want to talk about it from the point of view of a writer's problem because after all, you didn't ask me to become a writer. But it seems to me that the situation of the writer in this country is symptomatic and reveals, says something very terrifying about this country. And if I were writing hypothetically about a Frenchman, I would have in a way a frame of reference and a point of view. And in fact, it is easier to write about Frenchmen, comparatively speaking, because they interest me so much less. But to try to deal with the American experience, that is to say, to deal with this enormous incoherence, these enormous puddings, this shapeless thing, to try and make an American, well, listen to them, and try to put that on page. The truth about dialogue, for example, or the technical side of it, is that you try and make people say what they would say if they could, and then you sort of dress it up. Uh, you, you dress it up to look like speech. That is to say that it's really an absolute height. People don't ever talk the way they talk in novels, but I've got to make you believe they do because I can't possibly do a tape recording. But to try and find out what Americans mean is almost impossible because there are so many things they do not want to face. And not only the Negro thing, which is simply the most obvious and perhaps the simplest example, but on the level of private life, which is, after all, where we have to get to in order to write about anything, and also the level we have to get to in order to live. It seems to me that the myth, the, the illusion, that 
this is a free country, for example, is disastrous. Let me point out to you that freedom is not something that anybody can be given. Freedom is something people take. And people are as free as they want to be. One hasn't got to have an enormous military machine in order to be unfree. When it's simpler to be asleep. When it's simpler to be apathetic. When it's simpler, in fact, not to want to be free. To think that something else is more important. And I'm not using freedom now so much in a political sense as I'm using it in a personal sense. It seems to me that the confusion is revealed, for example, in those dreadful speeches by Eisenhower, those incredible speeches by Nixon. They sound very much, after all, like the jargon of the beat generation, that is, in terms of clarity. Not a pin to be chosen between them. Both levels, that is, the highest level, presumably, the administration in Washington, and the lowest level in our national life, the people who are called beatniks, are both involved in saying that something which is really on their heels, does not exist. Jack Kerouac says, holy, holy, and we say red China does not exist, but it really does. I'm simply trying to point out that it's the symptom of the same madness. Now, in some way, somehow the problem the writer has, which is, after all, his problem, and perhaps not yours, is somehow to unite these things to find the terms of our connection without which we will perish. The importance of a writer is continuous. I think it's socially debatable and usually socially not terribly rewarding, but that's not the point. His importance, I think, is that he is here to describe things which other people are too busy to describe. It is a function, let's face it, it's a special function. There is no democracy on this level. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's a very special thing to do. And people who do it cannot, by that token, do many other things. But their importance is, and the importance of writers in this country now is this, that this country is yet to be discovered in any real sense. There is an illusion about America, a myth about America to which we are clinging which has nothing to do with the lives we lead. And I don't believe that anybody in this country who has really thought about it, or really almost anybody who has been brought up against it, and almost all of us have one way or another, this collision between one's image of oneself and what one actually is, is always very painful. And there are two things you can do about it. You can meet the collision head on and try and become what you really are, or you can retreat and try to remain what you thought you were, which is a fantasy in which you will certainly perish. Now, I, I don't want to keep you any longer, but I'd like to leave you with this. I think we have some idea about reality, which is not true. I think without having anything whatever against Cadillacs, refrigerators, or all the paraphernalia of American life, I yet suspect that there is something much more important and much more real which produces the Cadillac refrigerator atom bomb. And what produces it, after all, is something which we don't seem to want to look at, and that is the person. 
A country is only as good, and I, I don't care now about the Constitution and the laws at the moment. Let us leave these things aside. A country is only as strong as the people who make it up, and the country turns into what the people want it to become. Now, this country is going to be transformed. It will not be transformed by an act of God, but by all of us, by you and me. I don't believe any longer that we can afford to say that it is entirely out of our hands. We made the world we're living in, and we have to make it over. That was Brandon J. Durden performing James Baldwin's Notes for a Hypothetical Novel. I'm Roxane Gay. Thank you for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Sherman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Lemberg Foundation. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. <laughs>